welcome to Quid Pros Quo. I'm Rin. And I'm Zach. And we are on episode three of our Real Artists Don't Starve series. The next principle of the thriving artist, which is the opposite of the starving artist, is the thriving artist goes where creative work is already happening. Yeah, in the book, Goins is talking more along the lines of like moving and being like physically inside of a spot where creative work is already happening. Um, but this can be something, you know, it can be virtual. It can be, you know, less, you know, committal where it's like, you know, I really don't know if I have the 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 resources to, you know, pick up and move to New York where all the, you know, the big publishing houses are. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be something as simple as being, uh, as getting together with uh, your fellow um, NaNoWriMo writers when you have uh, your write-ins that are sponsored by your municipal uh, liaisons. Um here inside of um, inside of our area, the uh, NaNoWriMo community actually meets weekly um, to to do a write-in. Um, it's not an opportunity that I have taken advantage of just quite yet, um, but it w- is an excellent opportunity to go where the creative work is already happening and to network with other writers and see what they're up to. Yeah. I have gone to those a few times. They're always really good, uh, good people. I don't go most of the time just because it's too hard to get there because I don't have a car. Yep. But it is a fun way to go and collaborate with other people, as we were talking about that in the last episode. Yeah. If you're looking for a more in-depth discussion of uh, um, writing groups, you should go back and listen to one of the episodes that um, Rin did with our previous podcast host, Isa, mm-hmm. um, where they talked specifically about writing groups. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, another way you can go where I want to dive more into going where creative work is already happening online. Yes. It's really fun to cultivate an online space where you're surrounded by other writers. Like, I have several Instagrams. I have, like, my personal one, and then I have my author one, and then I run the Quid Pros Quo Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and my I very much compartmentalize those, so my personal one is all, like, my friends and family and, like, a couple meme accounts that I really think give me high-quality memes. <laughs> um, but my author account is focused on other writers, so I've, like, cultivated this space where if I'm, like, oh, I need writing inspiration or I want, like, like a memes about writing, I go to my author Instagram and, like, go through that feed. Um, if you want a more collaborative space than just going to your Instagram feed, you can go on Discord. There are so many communities. I'm in at least three different writing group discords. Mm. So there are lots of options for you out there online, and I just wanted you to delve into that a bit. For sure. Some other options are um, Reddit. Um, Reddit has, you know, communities for, for everything. Um, there, I'm a member of several writing subreddits and a world-building subreddit, and you get to see some cool stuff of what people are what people are working on, and that's how that's oftentimes how you can open up opportunities to opportunities to collaborate, um, is through those online groups. Awesome. Uh, the next principle of this thriving artist is a thriving artist cultivates patrons, and we've been talking about patrons since episode one of the series, and now we finally get to delve into it. So. What is a patron? A patron is somebody who pays you to make art. It's that simple. Um, in During the Renaissance, you had these super rich landowners who worked as patrons for artists like Michelangelo and Raphael 
who lived on their estates and who were paid a stipend in order to create their in order to create their art. Um, these days, that kind of situation doesn't really happen, um, or at least not as much with as much frequency as it used to. And as far as I'm aware, at least. Yeah. So you're going to have to think creatively about cultivating your patrons. And so if you are, if you are an indie author, um, your readers are, are your patrons. As they buy your work and as they leave reviews, they are the people who are giving you money to continue to, to create art. Um, there are other ways that you can, uh, that you can cultivate patrons. Um, it, you can make work one of your, like your day job, one of your patrons, as we talked about in episode one. You can um, look for grants, um, apply for, you know, artists in residence positions. Those are other examples of finding patrons. Um, one of my favorite ways of doing it is through a service called Patreon, which is a website that allows people to organize grassroots communities of patrons in order to finance their work. Um, there are lots of great resources on Patreon's website if you're interested in learning more. With my experience, it's been reaching out to family and friends who have either read my writing or who know about my writing and just asking, hey, would you be interested in becoming a, in becoming a patron? Um, and that's how I've gotten my patrons who now you know, supply me with a, you know, with a monthly uh, stipend to to write, um, which is a really great setup for me um, because it means I can count on money coming in every month that I can set aside for, you know, new writing software or website hosting costs or ad spending um, or, you know, commissions, whatever that may be, that knowing that that money is there helps me to think about, okay, I can do, you know, there's, there are things that I can do writing wise. I might not otherwise be able to. Yes, absolutely. It goes back to the first principle in the first episode where you need to have a comfortable living standard Yes. before you can do it. You need to have some money to put towards your art because mm -hmm. art's not free to make. It costs time, it costs energy, and sometimes it costs money. Mm -hmm. So the next principle is the thriving artist is stubborn about the right things. And I think to a degree it's up to each artist what is the right thing for them. Mm -hmm. Like... For example, we've talked about this before, like you don't believe in like publishing novels, your own novels as self-publishing. Right. Um, whereas I self-published my first novel, I really wanted that experience, I wanted that peek into the self-publishing world. Mm -hmm. And now having done it, I know I don't want to do it again. <laughs> it's so much work, guys. Um, so like, you want for Zach, that's the right thing, and now for me, that's the right thing, is to be stubborn about like traditional publishing. But there could be, like, other right things that you want to be stubborn about that are just better for you. Yeah, sometimes this can be being stubborn about elements of your story. So, for example, the story that I'm currently querying is a tragedy. You cannot, like, there's no way to jimmy it to make it not a tragedy. And so if, a, for example, if an agent were to come back and be like, hey, I really like your work, it, it's just kind of a bummer. You know that would be a, that would be a, a a deal breaker for me, where it's like I can't really tell the story that I want to tell and make it into 
make it into having a happy ending because the point is that it doesn't have a happy ending. Absolutely. If you change it, then it changes everything about, you know, it changes everything about the work. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of, you know, a story element that you're stubborn about, um, which is not an excuse to be uncooperative with an editor or with an agent. Yes. Um, there are some things that you just need to kill your darlings on and move on. But sometimes there are things that, that are just so core to the so core to the story that you can't let them go or so core to your message as an author that you can't let them go. Absolutely. Yeah, one thing I think of is, like, my friends who are, like, romance authors, but they're also, like, devout Christians, and they, like, they're, like, I'm not going to write sex into my romance. Yes. And so they have, like, a hard time in the romance industry where there's a lot of sex in the writing. Ah, people love their smut. Yeah. Apparently, can't relate. Um, <laughs> but they just have to find like their editors and their agents that are okay, like representing like what they want. Because like, oh, I wish I could remember who told me this anecdote, but it was some lecturer in a writing creative writing class, and they were like, "Yeah, I was querying this book right after Fifty Shades of Grey came out, and." Every like that's all they thought the market wanted because Fifty Shades of Grey was doing so good. Yeah. Um, but then they were like, "Oh, it was in the book I was reading, Girl Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis." Yes. Uh, she was like, "I'm not going to write sex into my story," and eventually she did find someone who like, I think she found someone who took the book. I can't remember. Uh, it might have been just too light and fluffy for the market at the <laughs> time, but. You know, but Hallmark is a thing that Hallmark has to be a thing. thing. And there are like you know there are Christian readers and other religious yes. readers who definitely do want that, and it's hard yes. for them to find. So there is a market out there for your book. You just have to make sure you're looking in the right place. Yeah, one of my one of my former history teachers is actually in that boat, where she is a a romance author who writes wholesome, clean uh, romance, clean romance, and she has her she has her niche, and she has her publisher who looks towards that niche. Um, and that's a that's a great example of something to be stubborn about. Another example that I think about is um, um, are actually two science fiction authors. One of them is um, Ursula Le Guin. Inside of her book, Wizard of Earthsea, which is not a science fiction book, it is a fantasy book, but um, she was very adamant about having her character not be white. And at the time, that was something that was hugely taboo inside of the publishing industry. And so she kind of snuck it in there where if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't know specifically that the main character isn't white. Um, but that was something that she felt passionately about and that she pushed into into the writing. And then I also think about um, Margaret Atwood, where what she said, she made a commitment to herself before she started writing The Handmaid's Tale, where she said nothing that happens in this book can't have happened before. It, you know, with different characters or in a different setting or, you know, whatever. But everything that happens in this book has to be based in some sort of episode that has passed inside of the past, which is part of the reason why The Handmaid's Tale is so horrifying is yeah. because it, it just feels so, so it's close. Reality. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, with the Ursula Le Guin stuff? Yes. It was like... You don't want to pull a J.K. Rowling. Oh, my word. (laughs) Rule of thumb, you just don't ever want to pull a J.K. Rowling. (laughs) You, like, retcon something, I think is the term. Yes. Where, like, you're like, oh, actually, Hermione's black. Yeah. It's like, and then, like, you have readers scouting the text to prove she's not, which is, like, 
the racist implications of that are something we're not going to go over <laughs> right now. But, like, you do, if you want to write diversity into your story, and we have a couple episodes on, like, writing diverse characters, so you should go back and listen to those. But if you want to write diversity into your story, you should write diversity into your story and, like, be stubborn about it. Because otherwise you will be pulling J.K. Rowling and being like, oh, actually, Hermione is black and Dumbledore is gay. I, and the I think the the thing to recognize is that it's not you know it's not bad if you have if you worked on something and you didn't have those you didn't have the diversity that you wanted inside of it mm-hmm. just make a new character like yes. just make a new character because it's a lot easier and it's a lot easier on the reader to create a new character that they can learn to love on the you know on the grounds that they are who they are rather than trying to convince the character to or convince the readers to love a character based on new grounds Mm -hmm. that they didn't know about before which i think is part of the reason why people get upset when there are these you know these retcons about oh dumbledore is gay you know hermione could be black and it's like well i mean sure like whatever when people are falling in love with the characters, they fall in love with them as a certain way. And when you change, when you change something about that, it threatens the relationship. Yes, absolutely. Um, and also, it's not good representation to retcon stuff in. Yes. So that's maybe the most important part. But anyways, this has been episode three of our Real Artists Don't Starve series. We will see you next week for our fourth and final episode, episode four. Thanks for listening to Quid Pros Quo.